The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 144 of the Sample Chapter Podcast. Oh my goodness. Hey, if I sound a little different this week, uh, that is because I am sitting in a Barnes and Noble or just at the edge of a Barnes and Noble, uh, between Barnes and Noble and the mall, hoping that uh, some of the background noise doesn't come through. I don't have my microphone with me today. Uh, but I had a, uh, my, my father is having a major surgery today. And so I am in the area to help him and my mom. And, uh, you know, I thought I'd go ahead and work on this and, and, uh, get things prepared for the uh, most recent episode. And, you know, it, it just kind of seemed a little fitting that, uh, I would go ahead and just record this and see how it went while sitting uh, near a Barnes and Noble. So seems kind of, seems a little fitting, doesn't it? So hopefully I don't sound too odd. But as I said, this is episode 144, and this week we are firing up a stogie to have a sit and chat with multi-genre and award-winning author Gary Phillips. Gary was a blast to speak with (laughs) as we discussed things like uh, getting used to the back and forth of this pandemic, finding inspiration in in social unrest. Uh, You know, he has some characters that were inspired through the original, like the Rodney King events back in the 90s, working in different genres and media to help inform and keep his writing fresh. And uh, you know, just, just so many other things. And we even get, a little, get off on a little sidetrack bar discussing cigars, uh, but it's lots of fun. Uh, it was a real good time talking with Gary. Plus, he has an infectious laugh that is sure to bring a smile to your face. All of this, plus a gripping sample chapter Coming to you in mere minutes, so stay tuned for that. It's coming right up. First, I want to thank my sponsor, Scrivener. As always, they are my favorite writing software. And, uh, you know, here I am. Like I said, I'm sitting outside this Barnes & Noble. I've been working on this episode. I've been working on another episode. And in between, I've been going back in. I take turns. I go in and I work on my current project, trying to get those final edits done on Novel Idea. And all of that editing, whether it's editing on that story or writing something fresh in one of the other stories I'm working on, it's all done in Scrivener. Because as I've mentioned before, when it comes to Scrivener, I have all of my stories are in there. And it doesn't matter which one I pull up. I have the character notes, at the background information, the settings. Everything is in that corkboard and ready to go for me whenever I need it. And I can move things around as needed. You know, say what's in chapter five no longer works and needs to come later in the book. I can move that right over. Chapter five is now chapter 10, you know, or vice versa. You know, there's just so many things that you can do in Scrivener. Hey, listen to this advertisement for our sponsor and make sure you're listening for the coupon code that's going to save you 20% off the regular desktop version. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. 
Now I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software, built by writers for writers. All right. Yes, once again, thank you so much to Scrivener. I love having them as a sponsor and and, uh, just love using that product. I also want to thank my podcast networks. Pop Goes the Culture Network. Uh, You can click on the link in the show notes or head on over to popgoesculture.com, depending on whether or not you're driving. Don't do any of this when you're driving, okay? Don't reach over there. Stay off your phone. You can listen to me. You can listen to the episode and listen to their shows, but don't click any buttons while you're driving, all right? Anyway, but yeah, Pop Goes the Culture Network is your home to about 10 different pop culture-related shows, movies, actors, wrestling, anything in that pop culture genre. I mean, even toys and, you know, the clothing from back in the day, back in the 70s, 80s, whatever, you know, that's what they're talking about. Even in the 90s, it's all available to you. Lots of fun stuff. So make sure you click that link in the show notes when you can and check out popgoesculture.com. And I just, I love being a part of that network and I think you're going to really enjoy checking them out. I also want to thank my other podcast network that we are so happy to be a part of, which is Project Entertainment Network, home to more than 35 different shows with a wide range of subjects from shows on writing, on books, on horror, uh, movies, monsters, faith, opinions, comedy debates, just it goes on and on. They have so many wild shows on there even baseball there's even a baseball show on there now so many great shows hey check out this advertisement for one of those wonderful shows on the project entertainment network this is jim adams from monster attack hey if you remember that monster movie from your childhood that got it all started for you the one that really got you interested in monster movies horror movies sci-fis and cult films then you're going to want to listen every week to monster attack we look at some of our favorite monster movies from the 50s 60s and 70s with new episodes uploaded every monday it's monster attack exclusively on the project entertainment network and once again that is just one of the more than 35 shows located over on the project entertainment network so click that link in the show notes and find out about all of them hey uh, make sure you are following all of us Uh, Both networks and our sponsors and this show included on social media. We're all available to you on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, I know we're on Instagram as well. The Sample Chapter Podcast is also on Instagram. So just look us up. You can find me there at Sample Chapter Podcast on any of those. You can make sure you're hitting like. Um, Any of the podcast platforms that you're listening to, I'd really appreciate a star rating. And if you want to leave a review, then that'd be great. And don't forget to share your favorite episode with friends. If Whenever you find an author that you are really excited about, I really appreciate that. And uh, of course, whenever I find uh, people talking about the show or uh, whatever, I will make sure and give you a shout out on the next episode. 
If you want to reach out to the show, you can do so via email at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com, or you can leave me a voicemail by calling 660-851-1146. And uh, as always, leave me a voicemail that I like, and I will make sure and play that on an upcoming episode. All right, without further ado, it is time to get us on over to our outstanding conversation with the incredible Gary Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sample Chapter Podcast. This week, we are going to be sitting down with author Gary Phillips. Gary has written novels and short stories featuring private investigator Ivan Monk. He writes on politics and pop culture for places as the LA Times, the LA Watt Times, Rap Pages, San Francisco Examiner, and more. He occasionally loses money at the poker table, which I can relate to. Watches his kids play sports and finds that walking the dog is a fine excuse to light up a stogie. I'm going to love this conversation. <laughs> Gary, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Jason. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. And yeah, I can tell already we're going to get along real good. So, <laughs> uh, Before I start asking you cigar and poker questions, uh, how are you doing? And are you getting along fine during this uh, pandemic? Well, you know, I guess we've kind of, uh, as everybody has, you know, you kind of settle into the new, uh, I guess it's the new groove, right? I mean, so what, uh, yeah. yeah, so what choice do you have but to sort of figure out, uh, uh, and I guess partly because, you know, being a writer, it's somewhat solitary to begin with, but then, like, I can't go to the gym, or I could go to the gym for a while, you know, I'm in LA, so we mm. could go to the gym for a while, now we can't go back to the gym, now maybe we can go to the gym again, uh, <laughs> if it's only one quarter full, and, you know, you know, take our temperature, and, you know, all the things you need to do, wear your mask, uh, and so, I don't know, I guess I just gotten used to uh, the new, is this the new normal, I guess, as everybody has, right? Oh, right. Yeah, I was, you know, I, I was doing really good there at first, staying in shape, actually getting in better shape, I was really happy, then I kind of... Hey slacked off for a while was eating all kinds of things and then i started getting better recently again and now the halloween candy's coming out and uh, there you go i'm like oh boy I'm in trouble right, again. right i hear you <laughs> one of the highlights about getting to do this this uh, show is i get to meet authors all over the world and so getting to hear about you know or getting to talk to brand new to me authors is yes. so incredibly exciting so i can't wait to hear about ivan monk well, I guess the, the, the long story short is the first uh, Monk novel, I can't even believe it's been this long, but I guess it's uh, 20, or it's going to come up on 28 years. Cause, so the first Monk novel showed up in 94, and I was coming out of the events of 92 here in Los Angeles, uh, mm. the Rodney King riots, the civil unrest, whatever your political bent is in terms of how you, the, the, the lens in which you saw that. Mm -hmm. And because my background had been as a, labor organizer and I'd also worked in community groups and worked for nonprofits and what have you. And I can't, I kind of had a, I sort of on the ground look at some of the players who were coming together post uh, those events to try to help rebuild the city and, you know, try to move forward in a positive way. And I thought, well, what, wouldn't it be interesting if I could set my character, my private eye character uh, in the midst of this and sort of both sort of look at the, the, the forces 
uh, on both sides of the law, trying to trying to do things that were, you know, like I said, moving the city forward, and those who maybe uh, had other uh, designs. So, so with that in mind, that's really how I came up with. Well, I, I had actually come up with a character before. I should I should I should be very clear. Mm -hmm. I had come up with a character Ivan Monk in a previous novel, which never saw the light of day. That is to say, I wrote the novel, but it never was published. But I also, but then when the events of '92 happened, I thought, well, I do know, you know, something about that, so I could probably write that. And that that book was then subsequently uh, published. Yeah, yeah, and it went on to uh, what you had three sequels, four and all. Yes, yeah, four and all, and then there's there's a whole collection of Ivan Monk short stories, and then one of these years, uh, <laughs> one of these years, I'm going to get back to write getting that fifth uh, Ivan Monk uh, book done. Oh, fantastic. Nice. Yeah, yeah. All right. Have you always been uh, been a writer? Is this what you've always aspired to? Or, or were you, like so many other writers, like burning the midnight oil yeah. after working all day? Yeah. Mostly it was that, uh, Jason. I really never, uh, well, even when I was a kid, I mean, I, and I should back up and say that my, my dad was a, a, a working class guy, uh, poor boy from from a little town in Texas and he came west well he eventually came west he went east first then came west and my mom was a librarian and, and they met out here in LA and so you know I grew up around books and even though my dad was not uh as, as we used to say book book learned uh he appreciated he appreciated books and uh and of course as I said my mom was a librarian so I was always encouraged to read even as a kid I mean I played sports you know I played football and this and that in in school and high school and such mm -hmm. but I was always encouraged to read so I always had a love of reading or I guess I developed a love of reading and um and then of course then kind of stumbled into the mystery mystery and crime fiction world as well uh and then um I guess like a lot of folks who read or I guess like a lot of folks who think about it at some point, it just occurred to me, well, you know, I, I like this form so much. Maybe I should try my hand at writing a book. And uh, But it really wasn't until I was uh, in my early 30s after, like I said, you know, working a succession of jobs. And even then, I would write. I was young enough I could, I could come home at night uh, and the kids were small then or whatever. And then you get them in bed and, and then I could, uh, I could write at night. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that's how I, you know, eventually wrote several novels like that. And then I really didn't become full-time or didn't sort of fall into being full-time until really maybe about 15 years ago, I think. When I mean, I've had, you know, sort of consulting jobs or freelance jobs since then, but I haven't punched a clock uh, since, since then, I guess. So that, what would that be, about 2005? Yeah, about 2005, yeah. I think, I eventually became uh, more or less uh, what I do now. Wow. And that, that's impressive given that, you know, I, I think a good portion of the, the authors I've spoken to on here are um, indie authors who, yes. uh, you know, they're still working the day job. They're still doing things and really uh, haven't kicked off things until like around that 2010, 2012 right. timeline when Kindle really became yes. the monster that it is. Uh, yeah, that's a good but, point. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. But you've had a, you had a career before this with, uh, you know, selling books to the publishers and, and uh, really making a name for yourself. Or, <laughs> yes, yeah, such, such as it is. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but you know, but it's been, you know, it's been a roller coaster. Uh, you know, Jason, I mean, the, 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 like I said, I've been, you know, so I've been published since uh, 94. I've been published with 
big houses and a small house and house in between. Um, uh, one of the, I think one of the, uh, well, it's not a deficit, but certainly one of the uh, angles to being a writer is, you know, it's like, I guess it's like being a long distance runner, right? I mean, I mean, you know, you can't, you can't really go for the sprints. You can't really go for the quick uh, 40. You got to really be there for the long haul. And which also means that there's going to be times when it's pretty lean. There's times when, you know, maybe you're not, you know, selling. I, I've had, mm-hmm. I've been fortunate to be, you know, have, I've, I've published, uh, I think about 60 or some odd, you know, short stories. I've worked a little bit in television, just being out of here in Hollywood. So all those things have combined to uh, kind of keep me going. Uh, but there's certainly been times when, you know, I haven't, I'm working, I'm, I, I have a novel. We're going to, you know, we're going to get to that, the Matthew Henson novel, but that's really my first novel, I think, since 2012. I think I've, I've done a lot of stuff in between, but, but really to get back to, to, you know, publishing a novel, it, it had been a while. It had been, it had been a little uh, lean. And actually, interesting enough, uh, I'm, I'm finishing now the next novel that'll, that it's not a sequel, but it's a, it's a, it's another standalone novel that will be out. Well, I don't even know it's going to be out next year, but I got to turn it in for next year. <laughs> yeah. You certainly have a wide variety of, of interests, uh, mystery, Western science fiction, general mm. fiction, horror. And I, I even see you, you've got some work in uh, graphic novels. And yes. Just yeah. Tons of Comics. stuff. Yeah. I, I, I'm guessing that this really helps inform the rest of your work by getting to do something different. Do you th- feel like it keeps you fresh? I do. I absolutely, I absolutely feel that. I absolutely feel that, uh, well, you know, in the end, you know, we're storytellers. You want to tell a story. And, and I've been blessed that uh, I've been able to tell a story both in, in, in visual mediums as well as in the medium of prose. And for sure, you know, one does inform the other, particularly, I think, the visual medium in terms of, you know, the shorthand because of, you know, it's, it's visual. So you know, whether it's, you know, a, 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 a teleplay or a, or, a, or a script for a comic book, you know, it's, you're employing, you're not just the one telling, you're not the only one telling that story, right? And so you use a, uh, an economy of words and you kind of learn uh, a kind of brevity of language. And I think that has helped me in the sense of, carrying that over into prose. Now, prose, you got a lot more space. And of course, you have to uh, paint, you know, the picture, you know, as they say, right, whether it's a Western or whether it's, you know, Matthew Henson with the set in 1928 in, in, in Harlem in, in, during the uh, Harlem Renaissance and the Roaring Twenties. And so, of course, then you, you can't be too brief, right? If you, if you describe a car, well, it's a, you know, it's a 1928 or a 1927 Duesenberg. Well, you know, then you, could, you, you can describe a Duesenberg because nobody knows what the heck that is. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, but you can, you can have a little fun with that, right? Or, or you describe, uh, you know, a very specific event uh, during that time period or, or a plane, right? There's, there's a, you know, there's a pilot, uh, a woman pilot is one of the characters in the book. So, and so you describe the planes as they existed then, clearly not the planes that we have, that we have now. And so I think, so, you, so there's a balance, right? So there's a balance of trying to be economical with your wording and, and keep the pacing going and keep, keep things moving, but also then now and then understanding that, um, particularly, you know, for a readership of today, you want to stop and give a sense of what that time period was like. What, is the, what are the sights and sounds that your characters uh, are experiencing then uh, that helps, to inform, helps inform the story? 
And along the way, you've been able to, you've done more than just the one series with Ivan and Monk. You've also got Martha Cheney, yep. Essex Man, Nate Hollis, and now you're beginning a new one with Matthew Henson. What is it like to, to create a new character and a new series? Like, uh, <laughs> what's that, after making so many before, what's this like? Well, it's very interesting because you're right. This is the first time uh, I've, I, I have written things that are set in the, like, what they call them, the period piece. I have set, written things set in the past before, but this is the first time I've had to stretch, you know, the writing muscle to uh, fill up all those pages you need to tell, to tell uh, the novel. And I think, and, and partly because, you know, kind of like how we've done with uh, Wild Bill Hickok or uh, Bell Star or, the Earp brothers, you know, as I, you know, that movie, you know, that John Ford movie from the fifties, right. With, uh, uh, James Stewart and John Wayne about, you know, when the legend and the truth collide, you know, you yeah. print the legend, right. The, the, the man who shot Liberty Valance. Right? Uh -huh. and, right. And, 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 right. And so that's, so that's it. Right. The, 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 the part of it is about, I'm just, I'm creating a myth. I am, I am taking some elements, some real elements from the life of Matthew Henson, uh, who actually had a very interesting life, like like a Dickens character. He actually ran away from home from his cruel stepmother uh, at the age of 12 from D.C., and he went back to Baltimore. He, he, he was from Maryland originally, and on the docks, and he, and he signed on as a cabin boy, even though he was too young to be a cabin boy then, and came under the tutelage of, of the kind, kindly old Captain Child. I mean, it's, it's right out of, you know, that kind of novel, but it's actually true. And he, Captain Child taught him... Uh, nautical uh, uh, navigation and, and they talked about the classics and, and this and that. And, and apparently for, for a period of time from, I guess, about 12 to like he was 17 or 18 uh, until Captain Charles died, actually, he, uh, he learned a lot uh, at this, at the, by, by uh, sailing with this, with this captain. And, uh, and so some of that is like, so that's wonderful. Like that's like the stuff of myth. Mm. Uh, and so that, so that I guess really the answer to the question is I take some of the things that are obviously in the real world for, uh, Matthew Henson, and then I put them through the blender. In this case, I put them through the blender of a kind of neo pulp, uh, novel where I consciously, I'm using some of the, uh, devices of, uh, of, you know, 1930s, uh, pulp, uh, fiction, uh, specifically uh, Doc Savage came to mind as well as then of course, uh, Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones is not is a more modern character, but it's a retro character, right? He's he's set during you know the forties, I guess forties to the fifties, uh, and so again, you know, using some of those tropes of here's this explorer character. A lot of those characters were explorers. Doc Savage was an explorer, etc. And so uh, being able to draw on some of that, um, as well as an understanding that I was going to again put it through the blender of, of a kind of revisionist history. So at the end of it, yes, I came out with. With the with my character Matthew Henson, who has some relation <laughs> to the real life Matthew Henson. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so was it uh, was it like uh, starting a new series? Was it like visiting an old friend, getting back into it? Like the the excitement starts to build up. I think well, yeah, Jason. I mean, look, you know, in the end, right? You can only write the things that you want to read. So mm -hmm. so. But I was conscious that there were certain things I was doing in this book and that hopefully, you know, if I get the chance to write the sequel that I knew wanted to carry forward. As an example, 
um, it turns out that both uh, Henson and, and, and uh, Robert Perry, right, the, the head of the expedition, the, the, and there were several attempts. They made several attempts to get to the North Pole. It was only, I think it was their seventh or eighth attempt when they finally reached the North Pole. Those two and then the four Inuit uh, uh, men who were with them. And, and I talk about those. And the Inuit guys I, I talk about as well in the book. And, and Henson actually did learn some of the Inuit languages. So that's important to know, you know. And, and, that's, mm. a, and that's a great, but that's a great characteristic of a pulp character, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that I knew there were certain things, uh, for instance, as I was going to say, I guess that uh, Henson, as it turns out, had an Inuit son. Both Perry and Hinton had Inuit kids. Yeah. Now, in, in the real world, neither man saw those kids again once they left uh, Greenland, once they left the North Pole. But in my book, in my version, um, Henson, when we come to him in 1928, and I shave off some years because I needed him to be a bit younger and a bit more spry <laughs> <laughs> than he was actually in 1928, because they, they reached the pole in 1909, for God's sakes. Uh, he's he he has seen his son several times. In my version, he has seen his son several times, and now the kid is a teenager, and he realizes that look, or you know, realizes to himself that I, I I'm not going to be you know, well they wouldn't use the term absentee father, but essentially I'm not going to be this absentee father. And so part of the thing that is that's driving him in the book as an emotional kind of thing is that he wants to get back up north to see his kid and and be a better father than he than he's been so far. So so. So it was important for me to give him that kind of characteristic, uh, even though apparently in real life that, well, I don't know in real life whether it occurred to him or not, because I've, I've read his book. It was a book published in 1912 called uh, uh, Negro at the North Pole, which was his, not really a biography, but it's kind of his memoir of that time period. And needless to say, in the book, he does not mention the kid. And Perry never mentions the kids, but it's only uh, this other, uh, uh, this man is S. Allen Counter who was very interesting. He was kind of something of a Hinsonologist. And he's the one in his book, uh, Black, White, Black, and Eskimo, where he talks about the, the children. And in fact, in the 1980s, Professor Counter goes back to Greenland to find the two sons, the two surviving sons, and he brings, who are already in their 80s, and he brings them back to the States to be uh, sort of feted as the, you know, as the sons of mm. these great explorers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. What, uh, what kind of advice would you give somebody who's you know, just starting off as an author or they're, or they're thinking about doing it? Well, you know, the, the best advice is always, I think, well, two things, right? One is whether you're working full time or part, whatever it is right now. And, you know, the kids or in my case, the, like you said, the, I got the, I got the grandkid running around too. <laughs> uh, you just, you, you gotta be as consistent as you can. If that means, man, if that just means a half a page a day, then that's half a page a day. That's fine. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But then get half a page done. Uh, and and uh, try not to procrastinate. Just try, just try to, like every day when I'm working on the novel, as an example, when I'm working on the novel, I try to make my count. Usually my count is 1,200 to 1,500 words a day. Some, some days, man, uh, you know, the words just flow like, like, you know, like from heaven, right? And other days, it's like every word, I'm, I'm, I'm etching it in stone. Every word is like, you know, oh my gosh, it's just, it's just killing you. Uh, so, so one is just try to be consistent. Really, it's just be consistent. I mean, I, 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 that's probably it, really, more than anything else. I mean, I think, to me, I think writing is a work ethic like anything else, like any other job that we, ha- that we have. 
and you want to do your job, you know, you want, you know, you take some pride in your work, whatever, the, whatever that work is. And, you know, cause I've worked blue collar jobs, what have you, man, you just, you just gotta, you just gotta hit that lick. You just, there's no, there's no other way around it. I guess that's the, that's the really, so the only advice really is to try to be as consistent as you can. I know some people who kind of write in spurts and I, I just can't quite, I get it, but I, 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 to me, I think you just gotta try to lay it down, lay it down, lay it down. And then at some point you, you got some pages at some point you, you know, you've got some material, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and it may take you a while. That's okay. But that's fine. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Like you say, you just keep doing a little bit every day and eventually you're going to be like, wait a minute, I'm about to write the end. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So for me personally, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask as far as the cigars, do the cigars come while you write or is it a victory cigar after you're done? <laughs> well, you know, in this time of, of, of our coronavirus, I have been paying attention to the fact that, you know, you, you should probably <laughs> not, <laughs> not, tempt, not tempt fate and smoke too much. So I have definitely ah. cut down. I have definitely cut down. But because uh, I used to, you know, I used to smoke, I don't know, two or three a week, right? Oh, yeah. And it didn't matter, you know, just, but yes, obviously, kind of what is it like in, uh, what was it in Misery? Where, where at the end of it, when he finished the, the book, he would light up a cigarette or something. I can't remember. Oh quite. yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I have to say, Jason, I'm very tempted because, uh, where I live in Los Angeles, there is a, uh, it's funny. It's, you wouldn't think much of it. I live near what they call Koreatown and, and there's like this little liquor store, but in that liquor store is like a little walking humidor and it got like a great selection of cigars. So I'm, oh, I'm you know, wow. and this place is like within walking distance of my house. So I have to be very careful, man. You know, that, <laughs> I, I don't go exactly, exactly. <laughs> that I don't go overboard because uh, now I've had I've had a cigar sitting on top of my uh, dresser for a couple of weeks now, so I've been good, right? I've been good, but I've been thinking more and more because now I'm working on this new book and I'm already three quarters into the book and I'm getting you know, I'm going to stop and do some editing and stuff. And so you're right; it's like you know, shouldn't I, shouldn't 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 one treat themselves? You know, once you reach a certain <laughs> milestone or a certain plateau. So, but, you know, but I'm, I'm cautious, I'm cautious too, that, that, you know, you don't want to, I don't want to tempt fate and uh, get myself some kind of respiratory problem. So, you know, yeah, I guess you got to balance it. That's right. I, and, I got uh, to. Uh, can I ask what kind of, what kind of cigars do you favor? Ah, uh, Rocky Patel has become my, oh, my yeah, favorite. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Last, last like 10 years or so before. Oh, then, there you go. Yeah. yeah prior to that, um, I love my, uh, my Zenos. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the Davidoff, you know those, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Rocky Patel has just been oh, right there. There you go, there you go, man. <laughs> That's great. How about you? I uh, I used to be big on the uh, Partagas, Partagas. I used to be big on those. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm kind of favor the Maduro style, right? The Maduro blend, oh, yeah. I guess it is, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I've lately been into this. It's as far as I can tell, it's a, it's a no name brand, but supposedly. According to you know what they have on the wrapper around at the at, the, at Jack's Liquor, as I was mentioning, it's a, a, a Nicaraguan uh, uh, cigar, and I can't and I, and I for the life of me, I don't even think it has a name. I think it's like it's like a no name brand, but it's dark. You know, it's dark. It's Maduro, and I've been quite quite in, in, intrigued with those. And uh, oh, there was another one I really liked, which was. Uh, Oh my goodness, I can't remember now. It was the uh, it was a Churchill kind, but I can't remember. Oh, I know uh, 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 Garcia. Ve- no, not 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 Garcia Vega. It's uh, oh, what is the brand? 
Oh, I can see the I can see the label. Before we end, I'll, I'll figure out what it was. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I got to go on a cruise um, in January. It's my first yeah. cruise ever. We went to Mexico, and while we were there, I was able to. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't know, but I was able to go and buy cigars and bring them home. Yeah, they they were like, oh yeah, no, the embargo has been lifted. You can take as much as a as a hundred. Cubans there back go. with you. Right. Like, oh, there you go. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So That's right. Th those have been very, uh, th those went in my good humidor and they're, those are waiting for special occasions. The, the Cohibas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. That's right. But That's I think, right. uh, I think I may have to uh, light one up when this episode comes out. There you go. There in, you go. In honor of, of uh, Matthew Henson. And the it, oh, there you go. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Absolutely. Gary, where can people find and follow you? Uh, I have, I'm on Facebook. I don't tweet. I, 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 some, most of the social media stuff I just don't do because it's just all, it's just so time consuming. It's just, oh my gosh. Mm. I do have a website, uh, gdphillips.com, and it's, uh, it's in dire need of updating, but it will get updated. Um, but yeah, so usually it's Facebook or, uh, or, uh, or on my website, and, uh, and invariably, yeah, so invariably I'm posting little announcements like, so the book Matthew Henson was supposed to drop uh, last month. Well, yeah, supposed to drop in July, but because of COVID and because of things got delayed and what have you, and just in general, things got pushed back in the publishing, uh, which is whatever. Uh, it's going to now drop uh, November 17th. Drops November 17th. And it'll be, you know, it's Polis, which is a small press, but they do get the books out there. They get them in, in uh, I guess, as bookstores start to open again, they get them out there in Barnes and Noble and what have you. Uh, and there'll be both, uh, trade, well, Kindle, of course, uh, trade paper, and there's going to be a, a, a limited hardback as well. Outstanding. All yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Sure. I'll make sure to have, uh, links to all that in the show notes. So everybody knows exactly where to go and you right. can check it out. It looks really exciting. I love the cover on there. Oh, the cover is yeah. wonderful. It's great, oh, man. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. It's such a oh, yeah. throwback. It, exactly. It really, <laughs> exactly. Really brings me back to my childhood and uh, Dig it. checking out like, uh, oh gosh, it, you know, I, it doesn't look anything like it, but for some reason, I keep thinking of the shadow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but of course, yes. But it it, it, it evokes some of that. Exactly. Well, yeah. that's true. The, sh the shadow would invariably be be uh, uh, rappelling down from his auto gyro, you know, with his twin. <laughs> yes. So yes, absolutely. Some of that, like I said, some of Doc Savage as well as some of uh, Indiana Jones. So exactly, evo evoking that kind of. Uh, feeling that kind of time period. I love it. I love it. Good. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to set aside and uh, try to keep my hands out of the, out of the human door, but uh, <laughs> we're going to listen. <laughs> it's time to hand the floor over to our guest, Gary Phillips with Matthew Henson and the ice temple of Harlem. So I'm going to read just a bit from the opening chapter, but this gives you a sense of the character, gives you a sense of the place and time. And there's, and there is, uh, as as uh, Jason uh, advised, uh, a little bit of a, a action grabber as well. Her tiny eyes blink rapidly behind the heavy lenses of her glasses. She was on tiptoe looking through the peephole. Yes, she asked, frowning, then gasping in disbelief. My goodness, you're him, she exclaimed. I am, ma'am, said the voice familiar to many Harlemites. Bless your heart, she replied. Me and a few of my friends from our ladies auxiliary enjoyed that talk and slideshow about the ancient library at Timbuktu you gave at First Baptist last year. Thank you. Would you mind if I use your living room window? Oh, yes, yes. Come on in, Mr. Henson. 
She unlatched the door and opened it wide. The elderly, light-skinned black woman wore a quilted housecoat and slippers. Matthew Henson wasn't particularly tall, but at a shade under six feet, and what with his sturdy build, he gave the impression of being larger as he regarded the older woman's modest apartment. The diaphanous curtains were iron. The bright white doilies were scattered about. There was a built-in sideboard containing what he presumed were the dishes and the silverware only brought out for her lady's auxiliary meetings. You look loaded for bear, she said, eyes wide behind her glasses, noting his appearance. He filled the doorway in his working man's clothes, a rope knotted at intervals connected to a grapple coiled around his substantial chest. There was also an ice axe and ulu in the Inuit language, a small utility knife and other items attached to a custom-made tool belt he had on. He came further into the room and the older lady quietly closed the door. I'm sorry to intrude on your quietude, Mrs. CeeLo. The late mister was a railroad man. He traveled all over this country on the rails. She looked off toward a mantle with various framed photos on it, as well as a good-sized Santa Fe railroad enameled shield. Yes, ma'am. Where would we be without the railroads? He eyed the window across the room, but wasn't going to rush things and make her more nervous. No matter what might be transpiring just below them, He'd learned long ago in far harsher climes to pace himself. Lord, yes, she went on, our people's means of freedom in many ways. Isn't that right? He prayed they weren't about to have a revival. That is so, he inched forward a notch. Would you like some tea? She offered, but instead of the kitchen, she glanced toward her sideboard and its lead glass cabinets. Though I imagine an outdoorsman like yourself might want something a mite more bracing. About that there window, Mrs. Elo. Oh, yes. She started as if waking from slumber. You didn't come here to chit-chat. Maybe some other time when the clock's not against me. She beamed up at him. Really? Would you come back to speak to the auxiliary as my special guest? I would be delighted. The ladies would be beside themselves, Mr. Henson. Matt will do. She clapped her hands together appreciatively. Fine, fine. He went on past her to the window. He undid the lock and slid it up easily. After moving her easy chair and lamp aside, he secured the prong grapple hook on the frame and sill. The sharp ends dug into the wood and would leave gouge marks, but there was no helping that. Mrs. Celo didn't raise a fuss, being too polite, he figured. Is this a government mission, Mr. Matt? The window asked as he put a leg outside the open window. No, this is a private engagement, Mrs. Celo. I see, she said, her dubiousness evident. Henson was aware that there was a persistent rumor that many believed he was an operative for an outfit called the International Detective Agency. There was no such organization, but he knew the source had been a serialized story in a magazine several years ago called The Black Sleuth. Elements of the popular story got transferred from the page, as these things do, into a speculation in conversations in cafes and beauty salons throughout Harlem and elsewhere. From there, over time, fiction took on the trappings of gossip and always had its own reality. I'm thinking once you're gone, you're not coming back tonight. He was half out the window, unlikely. How do I get in touch with you, she asked. Just leave a word for me at May May's Diner, over on Lenox. Yes, near 132nd. Now, if you would, once I'm outside, please don't go near the window, he added, figuring she might take a gander as he descended. He also hoped bullets wouldn't be coming through to ruin her nice flooring from the story below. Very well, she said resignedly. 
he was depriving her of some of the excitement of having Matt Henson in her apartment, but she'd still have more than enough to tell her church ladies. His booted soles firm against the building's bricks, Henson, who slipped on supple seal skin gloves, held himself in place on the rope a few inches below the older lady's window. He'd lowered the sash, cognizant the warmth of the day was giving way to the early evening and that everyone liked the cold as he did. From where he was now, the window he wanted was below him to the left. He clambered down and cursed under his breath. The curtains were drawn, no way to tell what was going on inside, except a slight gap between the curtains to show the lights were on. Henson worked the rope around his vain form, holding his body in place. The other hand free, he got his axe loose. He had one of his miniature smoke bombs with him as well as an incendiary type. The latter was based on a grenade developed by the Germans toward the close of World War I. He wasn't of a mind to start a fire in the room beyond, at least if he didn't have to, but better to be prepared. Henson clenched the axe between his teeth and, unlimbering the rope, got both hands on it as he slipped down again. He came to rest just above the curtain window, not worried if those inside detected movement or not. Why did that blowhard Perry always bark? Find a way or make one, Henson. Well, shit. He smiled thinly as he pushed backward once, twice, and on the third time, muttering, whoop, halloo, got enough arc as he swung back toward the building and let go of the rope. His boots and legs burst through the glass. Though it looked like he would land on his butt, the airborne Henson tucked his body into a roll, and he landed nearly in a roll. One side of the curtains ripped from its pole as a material caught in the fold of his leg. A hood who'd been sitting in the chair eating a sandwich gaped at the unexpected entrance. He spat roast beef and tomato from his mouth, his hand darting for a forty-five and his shoulder holster draped on the back of a chair. He got the gun in his fist, but too late. Henson was upright and sprang on him. You goddamn bastard, the white gunman blared. Jump on this, Henson said as he punched the man in the side of his head. He stumbled sideways, dazed. A pocket door to another room slammed home. A second gunman in a garish tire came out firing a drum-loaded Thompson machine gun. He raked the room in a sweep of bullets, hunks of wood, cloth, and porcelain flying everywhere as the rounds blistered furniture and exploded the bric-a-brac. Watch where you're shooting, Eddie, the one Henson had struck yelled. He crawled behind a wing-back chair. Oh, stop being a crybaby, Eddie groused. He looked around, not sure where their intruder had gone. There was a swing door to the kitchen and several bullet holes that penetrated the door. That darky must be in there, said the first hood. He's as good as on the slab. Eddie started forward, sent another burst through the door. His companion, gun in hand, joined in. The door now hung loose, the plaster and frame now nearly non-existent. From inside the kitchen, got kicked all the way off and fell on the machine gunner. God dang it, Eddie said, knocking the door away from his body, but Henson had already deployed his smoke grenade, and the thick stuff spread quickly through the compact quarters. The hell, the hood with the forty-five said, can't see shit. He waved his hand before his face, seeking to part the pall. The ice hacks whistled through the dissipating cloud, sailing end over end until the blade sunk into the center of his forehead. Eyes rolling back, his brain ceased functioning by the time he collapsed to the floor. The smoke lifted from around the fresh corpse, crawling upward to the ceiling like ghostly tendrils. The occupants of the apartment were revealed. Water could be heard dripping from the pan beneath the icebox in the kitchen. Henson stood stock still on the plain carpet. Eddie, positioned just above the archway of the open pocket door, pressed the barrel of his weapon against the side of a pretty woman in a fashionable skirt and midday blouse. You go back and tell Daddy Paradise you failed, Shine. 
take another step, and this year, fine brown gal gets ventilated like Swiss cheese. The girl looked nervous, but not overly so. Henson nodded, cool-headed. They hurt you any, Destiny? Henson asked. Oh, they groused and strutted like roosters do, but nothing that'll give me nightmares. Hey, cut it out. He jabbed the barrel into her for emphasis. You got any idea who I work for, right? Henson said, I know exactly who you work for. Then you best skedaddle. You mess in a white folks' business and you already in way over your head. His gaze flitted toward the dead man and back to Henson. You're going to pay for what you did. If not in this room, then the next. What? He began, but didn't finish. In a motion that confounded the thug, Henson whipped his empty hand across his body like a magician's flourish. From out of his sleeve flew a shuriken, a throwing star. Two of its five razor-sharp points embedded deep in the wrist holding the Tommy gun. More from surprise than pain, the hood reacted, his grip loosening on his prisoner, though he managed to hold onto his weapon. She drove a heel into his foot, and he gritted his teeth. God damn bitch, he wailed. He twisted, leveling the gun back on her, but Henson had already closed the distance between them. Henson grabbed the barrel as a burst of fire leapt from the Thompson. Rounds ripped into the couch, cotton stuffing erupting from the destroyed cushions. Let go, the hood rasped, hitting Henson in the gut, surprised his fist met packed muscle. And just that quick, Henson batted the machine gun away while taking a step back as it fell to the floor. You're going to get yours now, the hoodlum said, his fists up in a boxer stance. I don't need no gat to teach you a lesson. He charged forward, swinging. In three blurry moves from Henson, the criminal was down on his back and on the floor, blinking hard at the man standing over him. Face blank, Henson's heel crashed down on his face, sending him under with a broken nose. What was that you did? Destiny Stevenson asked Henson. I've been to prize fights, but I've never seen boxing like that. It's called a Wing Chun. What is that? Kind of fighting technique. Chinese style of combat. You learned it in Chinatown? China, he said tersely. He gathered up her jacket, purse, and cloche hat and handed them to her. Like the man said, we better skedaddle. He also retrieved his axe and throwing star. My father sent you? Yes. They were at the door. More than one head poked out of an apartment in the hallway, then retreated. Stevenson pointed at the throwing star. Henson slipped back up his sleeve, securing it in place. That part of that wing chop-chop? The throwing star was of Japanese origin, but it was better not to be too literal. Yes, he answered. He undid a gunny sack from his tool belt and put his belt, axe, his remaining firebomb, and a few other items inside. He carried it that way, headed toward the rear stairwell. You're not part of Father's following, are you? How can you tell? You don't have that glazed-over look they get when his name is mentioned. He chuckled as they descended. He has his ways. A lot of people respect him. Ain't that something? <laughs> Dig it, baby. <laughs> that was Gary Phillips reading a sample chapter from his new book, Matthew Henson and the Ice Temple of Harlem. The book comes out November 17th. It is available right now for pre-order, so make sure you get your copy. I'm going to get mine, and I cannot wait to dive into this. Hey, don't forget to click the link in the show notes for that pre-order uh, for more about Gary Phillips. Also, don't forget the links for our podcast friends and sponsor alike. And while you're in there, as always, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out later this week when I'm back with Jabe Stafford with his debut novel, Ales, Agents, and Alchemy. See you in a couple days, folks. Take care. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.